In so many realms, these Rome games represented either the end of something or the start, wrote the Pulitzer-winning American journalist David Marinus. Certainly, it has been described by some, possibly those with extremely short memories, as the beginning of a less controversial, less political, certainly more commercial games. It was a games that merged the ancient with the modern and broadcast to the world on a scale never before seen. Welcome to the Olympopod, Rome 1960. Hi, Ruth. It's great to be back. And for what you said just before we recorded, and I think it's okay for us to say this, you said a boring Olympics. Well, what I mean is there's like the kind of our bread and butter on this podcast has been, you know, the fights that are broken out or like the athletes that get chased down by wild wolves and Mm. such, such malarkey. And there isn't as much malarkey in Rome. It, it went quite well for the organizers. Yeah, that's true. And much better than 52 years ago when they were originally supposed to host the Olympics and found that a, a volcano was a good enough excuse for them not to uh, to host it. If you remember going back to our 1908 that's, one. That's the gods. Yeah, the gods. Yeah. yeah, that's the gods telling you it's not mm. your time. It is not your time to record. That, that would be like been given an Olympics to host and then a global pandemic bringing the world uh, to a mm. standstill. Like, <laughs> take a hint, eh? More on that in the next one, Tokyo 1964. <laughs> From what I've read about these games, it seems like it was kind of the last truly happy games before things went a bit downhill globally. Uh, Rome also made use of their glorious history and their connections to Greece as well and really tried to uh, flaunt all of it, really make it feel like a historical occasion. Uh, A lot of what I read and heard is that it felt more like ancient Rome than 1960s Rome uh, for parts of the games. And they didn't lose any money, Chris. How did that happen, Ruth? Like, very cleverly, um, they were like, okay, we could raise taxes, but people won't like us raising taxes. Mm. So what do people initially like? People initially like football. They like football. Calcio. They like betting. So let's have a football betting uh, lottery, the total calcio. And uh, they raised all the money through that. They They managed to make a lot of money that way, but also made for the first time, a lot of money through broadcast rights. Yeah, we talked about just the last time that um, in Australia, there was kind of the first games that were commercially broadcast, but they they actually didn't make any money in Melbourne. They weren't allowed. The IOC weren't particularly comfortable with the idea because it was originally floated that uh, they would take quite a bit of the chunk, uh, which is now the case, obviously. Um, But yeah, Rome decided, okay, well, look, we're going to go out. We're going to let um, foreign organizations bid for this. So the biggest was CBS in the US. And then Eurovision also had the broadcast rights for Europe. I really like the process of how they managed to, or they brought over the footage, because although in Europe it was broadcast 
live. Uh, it had to be done delayed in the USA. Broadcast satellites were still two years away. So they shot and edited videotapes in Rome, fed the tapes to Paris, where they were re-recorded onto other tapes, and then loaded onto planes going to North America. <laughs> planes carrying the tapes then uh, landed uh, in places like uh, New York and fed the tapes into CBS to Toronto for CBC and then Mexico City for TSM. And so they uh, managed to actually get most of the broadcast done uh, on the same day that it actually happened because of, well, time zones. <laughs> now, I'm going to do something a bit controversial and talk about something that's not the Olympics for two okay, minutes. Um, oh, over, over the weekend, my dad was telling me about... Um, the 1950s World mm. Cup, uh, where the US beat England 1-0. And because obviously, uh, like it, it was in Belo Horizonte in uh, Brazil, which doesn't have a huge amount of infrastructure in 1950. Uh, so when the telegram went off to London to say that they had been beaten 1-0, the English papers didn't believe it. So they, they just assumed it was a typo. And they they reported that England had won. And I and I, I think they also like uh said that they had won like seven one or something. Like I don't think they just said I thought because the typo they thought it was like, oh, England is clearly missing a one here, so it was ten one to England. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah, it was ten, yeah, like it was like, oh yeah, yeah. That is the, it, they 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 won ten one. <laughs> Oh, the Brits. Uh, well, actually, the uh, the Brits, I had a look at the medal table, and they were nowhere near the top 10, it seems. Or at least they weren't in the top 10 for these games. And you know who wasn't on the top? It wasn't Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, do you know, like, I, I, you know... We, we... Ireland also Irish. Ireland was not on the top you're right Ireland was not on the top but you know I, I try just because we are both Irish I know most of our listenership no. isn't but they they like our charm um, I did try to find like something about the Irish team um, it, it, it was not great the only person who had even like any reference to them other than the fact that they went to Rome um, was someone called Sir Bland. And I went, right. <laughs> the, I didn't bother looking up any Irish at this one. None came across my radar. It's not that far from Dublin or indeed anywhere in Ireland. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, no excuses. No, absolutely. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, they weren't near the top. Uh, they were at the very bottom. But uh, go on, the U the uh, the Brits. Well, the thing is, there are a lot. There are quite a few new countries, so the, the competition is getting tougher <laughs> this time around. There were countries like Suriname made its Olympic debut. However, well, did they? Well, almost. <laughs> Siegfried Willem. SIS, also known as WIM SIS, was supposed to compete in the 800 meters, but he misunderstood or was given the uh, wrong time for his 800 meter heat and he slept in and missed it. Sadsies. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's like, that, that is kind of a classic Olympic story from like 1896. Yeah. It, it's a very, it, it has that kind of vibe to it. Yeah, true. Um, true. Yeah, well, in 2005, the Suriname Olympic Committee 
then gave him a plaque honoring him as Suriname's first Olympian and with a letter of apology for the mistake made by its official in 1960. Esaias died two weeks later of an uncertain Ooh. illness. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Um, anyway, I don't know how I got there. I wasn't planning about talking about him, but anyway, <laughs> he got there. <laughs> At least someone's talking about him. So yeah. I mean, like, do you know, he 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 very probably wouldn't have made much of an impact. Apologies to his descendants who are now listening to this podcast <laughs> in Suriname. But now, you know, he's he's been broadcast to our dozens of listeners. Um, so he's immortalized there for he not waking up in time. Soviet Union finished top of the table by quite a distance. Uh, 30... Two medals more than the USA, but the USA did produce a lot of like big name athletes at these games. Uh, we had Rayford Johnson, who won the decathlon. We'll talk a bit more about Cassius Clay. If you don't know who that is, listeners, we'll, we'll talk more about him as well. Also, uh, Wilma Rudolph, who was a star of the games. And so, so they did have quite a few big names at these games, even though they didn't finish top of the pile and who wasn't there because we said like it was not a particularly politically fraught games but we didn't have china oh yeah well the chinese are are like beginning their big black hole in terms of the olympic games at this stage right because of uh chinese taipei or taiwan or formosa uh i think they they, at this games they competed on their formosa but did so under protest yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think they still rather do. Like, it, it, I mean, it was the beginning of uh, sixty more years of under protest, mm. uh, competing under a title they don't agree to. <gasps> How about we go into the, the biggest stories? And yeah, we, we've kind of been dawdling a bit. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'll tell you about a character I like, and I use that. Um, words advisably, which was the German sprinter Armin Harry. He had just a few months previously set the 100 meter dash uh, world record, although it only stood for a few weeks. Um, but he was he he was a self-styled thief of starts mm. um, because he claimed he had this inbuilt talent, which gave him lightning quick reaction times. He had two full starts in the 100-meter file. <laughs> what? How many are you allowed? Um, more than two. Well, more than two, yeah. On the third attempt, it went fine, and he took the gold with a time of 10.2 seconds. Some of his opponents kind of had your reaction, Chris, um, and thought he was a bit of a chancer. Yeah. The British sprinter Peter uh, Radford told an interviewer decades later that Harry would wait until we were all on our fingertips in the set position. Then he'd take up his place, pause momentarily and run. He might get caught with a false start, but he might also get away with it. Um, so there you go. Afterwards, and this Radford still saying, the IAAF said that if the sprinter didn't come to a position on command, he'd get a false start. That ruse wasn't open to anybody to use again. These days, he'd be totally screwed because he can't have any false starts. And rightly so. Uh, rightly so. Now, I mean, what a chancer. A, oh my God. What a chancer. That's like, but, oh, <laughs> 
But so no, I like I, I quite like this guy. He also arrived in Rome with a sponsorship deal with both Puma and Adidas. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, he had shoes from both of them. Okay, and what did he wear? One of one brand and one on the it's left, and one on the clear, other. It's not clear, Chris. Okay. It's not clear. Or like, did he wear one of each on each foot? I don't know, Chris. And wait, it's uh, Adidas and Puma. Yeah. Uh, weren't they brothers? Potentially. Addy Dassler and, and his brother. I thought one was, was just the cash and no. <laughs> the other was yes. letters. No, Adolf Dassler. Addy Dassler was a German cobbler, inventor and entrepreneur who founded the German sportswear company Adidas. Uh, he was also, or Adidas, whichever you prefer. Addy Dassler is his name, so Adidas, I guess, is the right way to say it. Uh, he was also the younger brother of Rudolf Dassler, founder of Puma. Where does Nike fill it, f- fish into all this? That was that was their cousin. That was their show-off cousin from the states, yeah. Yeah, who emigrated. <laughs> um, so he played those two brothers against each other. That's brilliant. He's an absolute chancer. Yeah. No, he 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 was uh, convicted twenty-one years later of fraud against the Catholic Church in Germany. <laughs> Again, no, no judgment here. His 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 jail sentence was um, deferred to a fine, and uh, yeah, like he seems to be in great form. At least he seemed to be in great form up to a year ago when he gave an interview on the 60th anniversary of his world records. Um, he says he still likes to cycle around. Uh, his home village. So yeah, he seems to be doing great. Um, I don't think any of these controversies have had much of an effect on him. So I, I, I like him. He's a chancer of the pods this yeah. week. Um, I think it's great. Yeah, you know, for, for, the, for the kind of things he he does, I guess it's kind of like he's not going to be too bothered about you know getting that conviction or whatever because that's the way he just got away with it for most of his life yeah it's it's sort of the vic- a victimless crime as well unless you're one of his opponents the catholic church or um a giant conglomerate of sportswear so <laughs> I, I i'm i just think he's fine <laughs> he's this an problematic was... <laughs> um, <laughs> favorite it is the first time in olympic history that the usa didn't win any of the short sprint medals on the men's side so didn't win the 100 didn't win the 200 didn't win the 4 by 100 relay which germany won as well and i liked the 200 meter winner livio barutti he was a, a chemistry student who divided his time very much between university and athletics and he said that i had this image of being a committed athlete and a conscientious student but I worked harder on my books than on the track. They used to say that sprinters should keep themselves fresh, so I trained for three hours a week. Uh, he also wore sunglasses while he ran, and a home hero as well, an Italian, winning the 200 meters, which uh, is uh, is a cool story. So in that 100 meters, um, the silver medalist, Dave Syme, he didn't just lose the 100 meter, did he, Chris? He didn't. He was a loser all around. <laughs> silver medal silver medal what else did he lose in uh well he was recruited by the cia to try and uh get a soviet long jumper called igor aramovich ter ovanisian 
I apologize to Ukrainians listening. Um, he was a Soviet long jumper, but he failed. Igor did not defect. He was he was fine. He, he was doing quite well though. Saim and Ter of Anisian got along quite well and went to dinner together once, uh, and everything was fine. And then a CIA agent came in for their second dinner meeting to kind of close the deal. But that freaked him out. And he was like, I trust you, Dave. Don't trust this guy who knows too Don't much about me. Yeah, like kind of rightly so. Like the CIA, like mm, a bit dodge. But yes, yeah, so I, I also like, I'm sorry. One dinner does not a defection make. Like Wilma Rudolph did win. And she won everything in the sprints. The 100 meters, 200 meters and anchored the four by 100 meters uh, relay for the USA a phenomenal runner and watching the footage of her as well she was just like so graceful a like top class athlete and uh, one who many people consider to be one of the greatest female athletes of all time she was only 20 at the time she had won a medal in the relay four years previous in melbourne as a 16 year old uh, but here she was in the individual races she was the 20th of 22 children. Oh my God. Uh, her, par- her parents uh, from a small community uh, called St. Bethlehem, just outside Clarksville, Tennessee. She uh, suffered from a variety of ailments in her infancy. Measles, mumps, scarlet fever, chickenpox, uh, double pneumonia, and got polio at the age of six. As you could imagine, treatment was incredibly hard to come by. She was told that... She was not going to walk by a doctor, but her mother refused to accept that. Uh, she took her to uh, she took on her one hundred mile round trip to a black medical college in Nashville twice a week for two years, where she was given a brace in her left leg, given physical exercises, and then her siblings then uh, gave her daily leg rubs. So by the age of twelve, she was walking without a brace or crutches and uh, deciding to become. An athlete, she turned into one hell of an athlete as well, which I think is, uh, well, considering where she started from, we've had a few of these stories in the Olympopod of uh, people overcoming uh, these physical ailments. And I think this is probably one of the, well, I don't want to compare other things. We've had some extreme physical ailments on this podcast, but on its own, uh, uh, brilliant that she's overcome that. She arrived in Rome at the age of 20, had become a mother at that stage, a two-year-old daughter, and she became the first uh, U.S. woman to win three gold medals in the 100-200 and the sprint relay. She was uh, part of this track and field team called the Tiger Bells, the Tennessee Tiger Bells, uh, and that in itself is quite uh, an interesting story kind of in the longer term because her her coach also had a big part to play in uh, a lot of uh, brilliant female athletes and they came from very difficult circumstances to create these athletes and uh, i think because of the because of what she'd overcome uh, her and her beautiful style of running uh, she became a huge international star she was really beloved in rome and uh, pretty much everyone who met her kind of fell for her, including Cassius Clay. Including Cassius Clay. Very briefly. I, I, I don't think they were in a relationship for 
a huge stretch of time. I think that, I think this was kind of a post-Olympics fling, as often happens with the Olympics. Yes. Uh, well, from what I read, that it was mostly Cassius who was into her, and she was just like not really giving him the time of day. Uh, also, apparently, Cassius Clay was incredibly shy as a young man and kind of uh, hid his shyness uh, with his yeah, bravado. With his what? Oh, sorry. With his fisties. <laughs> no, more with his mouth, I think. I don't. Okay. <laughs> to the contrary, apparently, young Cassius Clay uh, never really fought with anyone on the street. He wasn't that kind of. Wasn't. Uh, wasn't that kind of guy. I just mean, like, he's kind of famous <laughs> for, um, you know, boxing. Yes. And for those of you who don't know who Cassius Clay is at this stage, he would be more commonly known or, yeah, probably is more commonly known. Muhammad Ali. He, he would take the name when he, he joined the Muslim Brotherhood of Muhammad Ali. Yes. And an interesting thing I read from The Guardian is that, uh, from Evan Fanning in The Guardian, is that the this launch pad into his career and he was just 18 years old winning the olympic games in the light heavyweight boxing division is that it almost never happened what almost never happened Chris, you can't just tell us that and not tell us more ah, tell us more well good thing we have evan fanning and the guardian here because uh, apparently he was incredibly scared of flying which wouldn't have been very helpful for his future career very difficult uh, for him. He asked if he could make his way there by train or uh, go by sea. He really yeah, didn't so I, fancy I, I, it. I imagine you'd. I imagine you'd have to kind of combine those two. I don't think there's there was a very good railway between uh, the US and Rome at that stage. I think you'd have to go <laughs> steamy steam, and then or I suppose you could like maybe get some sort of sledge from Alaska to Russia, then take the trans-siberian trainway uh to like yeah like you probably get you probably get a train you probably get a train all the way to rome then yeah okay josh that's on me i should have uh <laughs> I, I shouldn't have interrupted you chris apologies it would have been possible just it just it's just unfortunately that uh straight from alaska to uh russia would have been the stumbling block but, but there's ways around it yeah look, especially well, during winter the man asked, it would have taken a lot of planning the man asked the question if he could make his way away uh, there by train uh, if and, he was... and you can't and you can't get answers without asking questions so i applaud that so yeah bingo but he could have got the boat they could have they could have worked around that just later in life it would have been an issue but he definitely could have got a boat in fact chris <laughs> You know, this actually would have been uh, highly applauded today. With uh, what's you? What is this? Your Swedish compatriots call it this uh, flight shaming. Uh, I don't know what it's no. called. Flight shaming. Yeah. Okay. There's a there's a specific ro- word in your language. Flick scum. Is that a thing? Flick scum. It is a thing. Flick scum yeah. is a yeah flight shame. Okay. See. I know more about your country than I than you do. Yeah, Flyshamer Flick Scum is an anti-flying social movement. So Cassius Clay was well ahead of his times. He was. Uh, he sure was. I'm guessing, right, that he asked this question too late. Yeah. To actually take the boat. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is one of those things where he's like, "Oh, oh yeah, I have to go to Rome. Uh, is there no other way to go?" And it's like, Cassius. It's in two weeks' time. It's in two weeks' time. It's in two weeks. <laughs> so, um, when you, it's like when you order a pizza 
and you want something off your pizza, but you've already ordered it and it's on its way, it's too late to take that topping off your pizza. Same way, Cassius, put in your request. Even six months in advance, we can work around this. But yeah, it's we need to get to Rome in two weeks. It's going to be a plane. Thankfully, though, there was uh, Joe Martin, who was a policeman and boxing trainer, who had uh, previously got him into boxing by telling him as a 12-year-old that if he really wanted to deal with the thief who stole his bike, he should first learn how to fight. Uh, He said to HBO, he was afraid of flying. We had a rough flight going to California for the trials. So when it came to go to Rome, he said he wasn't going to fly. I said, well, you lose the opportunity of being a great fighter. And he said, well, I'm not going to go. He wanted to take the boat or something. I finally took him out to Central Park here in Louisville. We had a long talk for a couple of hours. I calmed him down and convinced him that if he wanted to be the heavyweight champion of the world, he was going to have to go to Rome and win the Olympics. So Clay did travel to Rome by plane, but he came prepared. Before departing, he visited an army surplus store and purchased a parachute, which he kept strapped onto himself throughout the flight. So he came very well prepared. In his defense, okay, so... He's 18. About, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and also, it's 1960. Like, yeah. I, I I know it's it's well within the you know commercial aircraft era, but like... I would say, you've you, like for lots of people who have probably only ever been on one flight or never. Mm. Like I, I, I kind of get it. Well, yeah, I get, I get the, get the, get the fear. 100%. I, I was on, a, I was on a flight in, on an old Soviet plane in the rainforest of Equatorial Guinea, which uh, on takeoff went into full electrical failure. And had that been my first flight, I think I would have been skeptical about getting onto a plane again. So I. Yeah, if it was a rough flight, your first ever flight in, you know, turbulence. Yeah, the planes were smaller, probably like not from not from New York or where Rio was coming from to Rome, but certainly like interstate. They, they they must have been fairly small, and the turbulence is worse in small planes. My only my only criticism, and you rightly pointed out, is just that he should have brought it up sooner. And we could have arranged the boat. Yeah. Anyway, he was amazing. He cut through the the whole field. Nobody really gave him too much attention, even after he had won. There wasn't as much attention on uh, him as I'm pretty sure they would have liked to have given had they known the athlete he was going to be. He had like a few paragraphs in the New York Times uh, and stuff like that, but... And I, you know, I've I've read a lot of kind of historical American articles uh, on Muhammad Ali and the nineteen sixty games are not really a part of what people have covered at the time. Uh, looking back on it, yes, but at the time didn't get as much uh, attention as uh, he could have. He uh, would go on to be Muhammad Ali and the greatest boxer of all time. I think it's not unfair to say. Hockey, Chris. Did the Indians um, win again? No, Chris, they didn't. <gasps> um, the, the the actual scandal of the hockey event took place during the ninth to 12th place classification <laughs> stages between <laughs> France and Belgium. So a very important match. Oh, God. Um, when in the 22nd minute, while Flan- France were in the attack, a traffic policeman, who I have to stress was outside the stadium, blew his whistle and made the Belgium team stop. 
which allows the French to score what would be the only goal of the game. At least it didn't matter because it was the At least game. it definitely didn't matter. Yeah. But as you said, did the Indians win? No, Chris. After oh. 32 years, six gold medals, 30 consecutive unbeaten Olympic matches, Pakistan beat India. I'll talk about Pakistan in a second, but just to put this into context... During this time, India had scored 197 goals and only conceded eight up to this point. It's pretty good. That is amazing. Pretty good. Now, that's pretty much all I have to say about Pakistan and the hockey uh, that they won. But as we know, uh, as you and the listeners know, I like to sometimes find a little bit of a fact which just seems a bit misplaced in a Wikipedia article. And I was looking at all of the different Pakistani players and I came across one, Anwar Ahmed Khan, who seems to have been a generally spectacular man. Um, He obviously won gold at this Olympics and he would uh, have two more silver medals for Pakistan in field hockey. And in this Wikipedia article, they just say he was no- he is known as the Rock of Gibraltar, and then doesn't give any explanation. It must be pretty. Like I said, just you know, I've got I've got ten minutes on my hands. I'm gonna I'm gonna find out where this came from. And I found then an obituary from 2014, which says it's a Pakistani obituary, and it says he was given the name by the New Zealand press during a Pakistani um, mm. hockey tour. Of New Zealand. And I just don't feel that that in any way explains the point. It's not as if there aren't famous rocks in either Pakistan or New Zealand. The Rock of Gibraltar, Chris. Why is he called the Rock of Gibraltar? I'm guessing it's because nobody could get past him. Yeah, he was very good at pivoting and he was very slow. They said, like, he just, he seemed effortless. But I just think. There are big, big uh, rocks in both Pakistan and New Zealand. Pakistan had previously been fantastic at uh, hockey um, and would go on to win plenty of Asian games um, as well as well as two more Olympic uh, golds. But as we know, Chris, from personal experience, the Indians always come back. They sure do. What what do you want now, Ruth? Decathlon or death? Uh, let's go for death. Okay. Yeah, I think... Cake or death? Uh, death. No, wait, cake. Sorry. <laughs> death. Um, this is not funny at all. Um, I think it is... It has to be brought up. Not just because it's the first death in the game since 1912 for an athlete, but also because of what happened uh, just last weekend uh, to another Dane, uh, Christian Eriksen, suffering a cardiac arrest at the uh, football European Championship. Thankfully, he is okay. Uh, so this is obviously no laughing matter. This was the first death since 1912, I said. So what is that, 48 years since Portuguese marathon runner Francisco Lazaro died in Stockholm. So it was Danish cyclist Knud Enemark who was in the 100-kilometer team cycling race. This is the first time that there was an individual race and a team race. So instead of just counting up all the scores of the individuals in the race and then having it as team points, they decided to have a separate team race. 
and Denmark, who were in fourth place uh, at one stage when one of the, when the fourth man, Jorgen Jorgensen, collapsed with mild sunstroke, uh, left them with just three people and three cyclists counted uh, when it came to uh, the final uh, time for each team. So because they were down a man, they were trying to make a, a particularly big effort to uh, get into bronze medal position. Then uh, Enemark uh, collapsed as well. And uh, he uh, suffered a fractured skull and later died in hospital. So originally it was blamed on like the torturous August, September conditions. Uh, It was particularly hot. I think it was 34 degrees Celsius. And there were some warnings as well before the race uh, saying that this is is actually quite ridiculous. But uh, there was a twist in the tale because tests revealed that prior to the race that uh, Knud Enemark was given Ronacol, a banned blood circulation stimulant. So apparently the combination of that and the heat had proved fatal. Yeah, and not a fun doping story either. I know we love fun doping stories here. Well, at the top of this episode, we uh, quoted... um David Marinus mm. and saying that it was the end of some things and the start of others. And this was kind of the start. It, it kind of shook the sporting world to take doping more seriously and to start uh, more rigorous uh, testing and uh, banning yes. substances. It was actually from this death that the World Anti-Doping Agency was formed, uh, really inspired by what happened there and began testing athletes it was also then kind of later revealed that at this time a soviet and american weightlifters were experimenting with anabolic steroids so that's all to come that's shocking <laughs> i can't i can't believe there is doping in weightlifting my favorite sport i i refuse to believe that it's not like cycling uh, our friend jeff tibbles whose book the olympic strangest moments has been quoted a few times here i really i mean i could feel his pain here when he wrote the he wrote a story about Knut Einemark Jensen's death. He added a paragraph right at the end, and I don't think it really helps the overall story. He wrote, on a lighter note, the heat obviously got to a man who tried to enter the Olympic Village with a colander on his head, claiming that he was the cook for the Lunar Olympic delegation from outer space. <laughs> So a, pa- a page and a half, a page and a half on on that story, and then a paragraph completely unrelated at the end. So uh, yeah, we do love Jeff Tibbles. Jeff, if you listen to the pod, we'd love you on. Yes, we definitely need to get you on. Oh, we haven't spoken about one of the biggest stories and there's a reason for that because we're keeping it until the end mm-hmm. and ruth you're gonna you're gonna take the lead on that one so i'll go through a couple of a couple more of the uh the big stories from this and one i really liked was rayford johnson who was in the decathlon he again is one of these names where or one of these people who uh, afterwards has been claimed to be one of the world's greatest athletes uh the decathlon at the time was well, like it is now, incredibly well-respected. I don't think it gets the respect it should nowadays because it is an incredibly difficult uh, event. But 
He ended up winning the uh, the Cathlon in 1960, and he also helped to tackle Robert F. Kennedy's assassin. Not at the Rome Games. Not at the Rome no. Games, no. No, he, he, he saved that for another time. He was a fine all-around sportsman. He was drafted by the Los Angeles Rams in the NFL in 1959, controversially, before the Olympics. Uh, what? Whoa. OMG! Uh, amateurism, what? Uh, also played basketball at UCLA, and uh, he turned to acting after his athletics uh, career. Was he Tarzan? He was... No, but he uh, was. Then I'm, do we care, Chris? Then I'm was, not sure we care. He was not Tarzan, but he did feature in uh, the Elvis Presley film Wild in the Country and in the James Bond movie License to Kill. Okay, so that's fine. In 1968, while working on Kennedy's presidential campaign, Johnson was one of the men to subdue Sirhan Sirhan after he shot and killed the U.S. presidential candidate. Uh, after he passed away, there was a, a quote from the L.A. mayor, Eric Garcetti, said, Rafer Johnson was one of the greatest people I've ever known, an athlete without peer, an eyewitness to history and leader in the making of it, a founder of the Special Olympics, a champion for justice and our city. Overall, a great man. And I haven't even spoken about the end of this decathlon. And that's an interesting story in itself. We called someone else a failure for only getting it silver and um, not and kind of failing to get someone to defect. I mean, tackling someone after they assassinate a president. Oh my God. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, it's impressive. But like, I'm just going to say, would have been a bit more impressive had he tackled him before. Anyway, that's just me. <laughs> Let's go on, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about the end of the decathlon. Uh, yes, let's distract from this bit, which is 100% staying in the podcast. Hot take, Ruth. Hot take. I think, I think the listenership will agree uh, with me. Uh, I'm not uh, saying uh, it's not impressive. I'm just saying it could have been uh, more impressive. Anyway, go on. It could have been more impressive. So in the decathlon, he was pitted against his rival, fellow uh, UCLA athlete and friend ck yang in what was known as one of the greatest decathlon events in olympic history he was from taiwan and uh, the reason that taiwan decided not to boycott the olympics altogether supposedly is because uh, they had this great athlete uh, who they knew was going to win a medal uh, ck had come from taiwan to train in ucla uh, because of the great Rafer Johnson, they wanted to, uh, he wanted to learn from him. They became very close friends and teammates for their college, but competed against each other at the Olympics. They were uh, really neck and neck, and it came down to the grueling 1500 meters, which is always hilarious to watch the athletes run at the end because they really don't like it. Um, and uh, CK was the better runner at this distance. Uh, Johnson's best time was 13 seconds slower than CK's best. And all Johnson had to do to win gold, though, was to finish within 10 seconds of him. So that was the plan. Uh, the thing is, though, they both had the same coach, who was the UCLA coach, Ducky Drake, who was in the front row of the Stadio Olimpico that early evening. Ducky. So first uh, first off, Rafer Johnson went over to Ducky and he said, what should I do, Ducky? Waddle, shake your tail three times and quack. <laughs> CK's a better miler than you. 
uh, and at about the bell lap, he's just going to pull away. So you've just got to stick with him. Somehow stick with him. So Johnson took that and went off. Then CK walks over to Ducky. What should I do, coach? And he says, uh, well, you're a better miler than Rafer. He's going to try and stick with you until that final bell lap. Then you have to pull away. <laughs> so <laughs> That is controversial. <laughs> so the, the race... Feed that ducky some bread. Yeah. That's... The race proceeds as expected it was. Uh, Rafer Johnson supposedly had one advantage, though. He knew this was going to be his last race. He was going to retire after this and go into the acting and life-saving business. Uh, He kept telling himself throughout the race, this is the last time I'll ever have to do this. Just hang in there, hang in there. And that's what he did. The final bell lap comes around, CK turns, and Johnson is still at his shoulder with a big smile on his face. He's smiling because of the horrible pain um, and just trying to conceal it. But it was psychologically effective. CK tried to pull away and he just couldn't. Johnson finished close enough and he won the gold medal. After that, they collapsed into each other's arms and made for a very nice photograph afterwards. And they, they, they stayed, they stayed, you know, good friends, good comrades afterwards. Uh, Johnson said that, that as much as he was elated about winning, he still felt really bad that CK had to be the loser. However, CK also had a career in the films, including Walk, Don't Run, a 1966 American comedy film uh, with Cary Grant in his final film role, and the 1970 Western There Was a Crooked Man. Walk, Don't Run is a really bad advice for anything other than the walking event. True. What is it about equestrian riders being as tough as nails? We had Liz Hartel, the, the Danish dressage rider who won silver in 1952 after being paralyzed below the knee. We had another story from 1996, which if you've listened to the time we were guests on the Keep the Flame Alive podcast, uh, was mentioned, and I'm pretty sure we'll go over it again when we get to 1996. Equestrian riders, great bunch of people. So here's Bill Roycroft from the three-day eventing, uh, a typically tough Australian who had been born on a farm and uh, was a laborer, sheep shearer. Uh, he used to break wild horses. And uh, he was part of the 1960 uh, three-day eventing team at the age of 45. So a bit of a late bloomer. Uh, made his debut as part of that team, uh, but he had a problem. He fell in the cross-country and suffered a range of injuries, a concussion, a broken collarbone, and extensive bruising. He was admitted to hospital and told to rest. However, his Australian teammates, despite carving out a huge lead before the show jumping, had a huge problem, is that one of the teammates, uh, Brian Crago's horse, went lame and was not fit to be ridden. They needed three riders to finish each event, so the country's hopes appeared to be dashed. Roycroft ignored the doctors, ignored his concussion, and um, was intent on helping Australia to victory. Assisted by his teammates, he clambered onto his horse and started to ride, even though he could only use one arm. Now, it wouldn't have mattered if he'd knocked down every single obstacle on his way. The team probably would have won due to their huge lead. 
Uh, but incredibly, he produced a clear round. <laughs> and the gold was secure. Despite his age, this was only the beginning of Roycroft's Olympic career. He'd go on to compete at the next four games until he was 61, added another two medals, both bronze, and he competed at one stage or another alongside his sons, Barry, Wayne and James. Fair play. I suppose what makes you tough as nails is that you go on top of a giant animal day in day out that can kick you off and then trample you underfoot yeah and somehow teach them to be to behave and to be ridden mm. or maybe it was the sheep shearing it could i mean yeah sheep are bigger than you expect i say this is a city person <laughs> okay now for games which are relatively speaking boring a lot happened a lot of exciting things happened but none of them compare to a certain Ethiopian. Yeah, it was the first gold medal for any black African athlete, which I suppose is particularly poignant because we said there wasn't much political turmoil for this, but there was a number of protests made against the South African team because their team was entirely white. And the... IOC said it would investigate the matter after the event. So, you know, there's, it's on the b- backdrop of this um, and some very inflammatory marks made by the South African uh, contingent at the time that uh, there was this victory. Um, and it was Abebe Bikila, who had been born in a rural community in Ethiopia's Shiwa region, on the 7th of August, 1932. And why would that be significant, Chris? I don't know. Tell me why. It was He was born on the same day as the 1932 Olympic marathon. Oh, yeah, amazing. Pretty good. Uh, there was me thinking, what did, the, what did the Italians do to Ethiopia at that time? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more brutality than symbolism. But yeah, go on. Yeah. But anyway, as a child, he primarily played Gina or Gina. Um, which is definitely pos- a possible contender for a future sports swap. Um, it's an Ethiopian Highland variant of field hockey, except there are no set boundaries and the goals can be kilometers apart. It kind of it reminds me of, you know, the kind of precursor to soccer, mm. which was played like over vast villages. Um, sounds pretty good. I like the idea yeah. of it. Um, at age 20, he joined the Imperial Guard in Addis Ababa, and he lived in the hills of uh, Salutu, which was 20 kilometers from Addis. So he was commute each day there and back by running. Uh, he was spotted by a Swedish coach employed by the Imperial Guards in the mid-1950s, who said, here, this lad can run. And he began his training for the marathon uh, there and then. He only won his first marathon two months before the Olympics in Addis, but that was, of course, enough to get him qualified. And the entire event took place in the evening because, as you mentioned, um, it was very, very hot. It winded through both ancient and modern uh, Roman landmarks, but the last few kilometres were down the iconic Via Appia, Attica. And it had to have soldiers bearing flamed torches every 10 yards to provide light for the runners. So it would have been quite a sight to see. He's this iconic winner and, and he, there's 
all of these images of him winning because he won barefoot. He he raced the entire event barefoot. But this actually wasn't intentional. He had bought new shoes in Rome for the occasion, but they kept giving him blisters. So he just discarded them at the starting line. And people were kind of worried about that because it was mostly cobbles, right? Exactly. The entire Via Ashka is like at a very... <laughs> ancient um, roadway, yeah, that is cobbled, as you say. That is very close to a turned mm. ankle. But he, he he did win. He returned home a hero and was awarded the Star of Ethiopia by the Emperor Haile Selassie um, and also given a Volkswagen Beetle. He would retain his Olympic gold in the 1964 Games, but in 1969, he was in a devastating mm. car accident in his Volkswagen Beetle that he had won. And it left him paralysed from the neck down. He was transferred to England for treatment where he spent eight months in hospital and he received cards and well wishes from around the world and even a visit from the Queen. Um, and he eventually regained the use of his arms, but he'd never walk again. But in 1970, only a year later, and like possibly like only a few months after he had been released from hospital, uh, he began training for wheelchair athlete archery. And that same year, he competed in the Stoke Mandeville Wheelchair Games, uh-huh. which we've talked about before. And he competed in archery and table tennis. And the next year, Chris, he went to Norway and won a 25-kilometer dog sledge competition. What? Yeah. He died uh, in 1973 at the age of 41, um, just four years after this accident. But he obviously leaves an absolutely wow. incredible legacy, both from his running career, but also his his life after that. Um, and particularly how much he achieved after his terrible accident. That's phenomenal. And yeah, he started this great tradition of East African Runners absolutely dominating long distance running. Which goes on to today. Beautiful. There isn't much call for dog sledding, I don't think, in the highlands of Ethiopia. What a man. And yet, this man is just like unstoppable. Love it. Until 1973 when he dies. Yeah. So, Chris, That's... it's time to swap. It's time to swap a sport. It is. And it's your turn to swap a it sport is. this time around. And so... If I'm not mistaken, you've got something big for us. What do you got? Well, it's big for what I'm taking out. It's, it's controversial for what I'm taking out. Uh, what I'm so, so something I was thinking about um, very cheerily is climate change, and uh, there's been a lot of talk, and we've talked about you know the the cyclists dying in this uh, Olympics and how the marathon had to be held at nighttime, and it is something that people talk about every four to five years. Um, that we host these summer games and conditions often aren't ideal mm. um, in the places that we host them. You know, like it's it can be very very hot for events that do have to take place during the daytime, like the marathon, etc. Yes. But we also hear a lot, again, every four years, though not the same four years, about the Winter Olympics and how, you know, climate change is going to affect the Winter Games mm-hmm. when there's less and less snow and less and less options of places that we can uh, host these things. And not that anyone ever wants to host the Winter Olympics anyway, but, you know. So, 
I was thinking, is there a winter sport that we could put into the summer games? And I was reading through and then I realised there's already a summer games that I, or a summer sport, well, a year-round sport that I like, um, which has a similar sport in the winter games, which is inline speed skating. Big fan of inline speed skating. Okay. Not a huge fan of the like really, really long ones, but you know, I I I I think it's a great I think it's a great sport. Okay. I'd be all for it. It the it obviously does require resources and I always take that into consider consideration. I prefer sports which only require a rope. So, so that's that's what you're bring that's what you're bringing in though. So yeah, so I really like so I I think that could be a really good exciting sport. Yeah. Like because like like everyone loves the velodrome. Well, some people like the velodrome. Um and I just think inline skating is that kind of like that similar vibe that could just really like be exciting, not the yeah. long distances. No one likes long distances. But yeah, I just think that that could be a really good sport, an exciting sport. True. Inline skating. Yeah. I think it must be a world games event. Right? Surely, I'm not. I'm not that. Okay. Yeah, I think they've tried to get in like roller sports. Tried to get into the 2016 Olympics, but uh, rugby sevens and golf got in instead. Um, but yeah, it has. Um, yeah, it is part of the World Games. So yeah, it's not too far away from the pinnacle. Yeah. yeah. So what are you taking out? Okay. So up to this point, Chris, we've alienated. The pool events. Yeah. And all the all its supporters. Yeah. We've said some harsh words about golf and equestrianism generally. And the entire track. Um so we're running out of people we can alienate. So I'm gonna pick on a former guest and kick out a former guest sport. Oh dear. We said at the very beginning. Uh, yeah. We we could remove sports oh, that cool. we had put yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. It's a living, and breathing collection of the world's finest events. Yeah. Except for this one, which is... I am kicking out Mount Marathon. <gasps> Paddy. Paddy's, Paddy's sport. Paddy O'Leary. Yeah. Um, one of our first guests. Our first guest. And the thing is, I really like the idea. Uh-huh. My issue with it is, is that it has to be in one location every mm. Olympics. And I I do understand that like that could have a charm in itself. And it's actually something that's been debated. Like, should the Olympics just be in, you know, specific places? But I think that takes away from... That's what Hitler wanted. Exactly. Not that Paddy <laughs> O'Leary is like Hitler. But uh, I just, I just think (laughs) that, yeah, I, I I just, I like, I would like us, I'd like a future guest or one of us to bring in a ultra running event in the future because I think it's a great idea. I just not sure uh, Mount Marathon fits in our games. Okay. Yeah. You've made your call. Well done, Ruth. Uh, I just want to, before we wrap up, to bring back an old feature we had. Mm. Olympic birthdays. Oh, yeah. Uh, because one of our biggest fans, who is Hannah Gödel, an Austrian living in Gothenburg, good friend of mine, 
and someone who I think would actually, if she had the choice, give up friendship with me if she could be friends with you. That's how weird. <laughs> she could be friends with me. She has my WhatsApp number. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it was her birthday last week on the 10th of June. Happy birthday. And so uh, I had a look back at uh, some athletes who also were born on the 10th of June. First of all, uh, a more modern one. Uh, we're going for Polina Kuznetsova, born in 1987. She's a handball player, won Olympic gold in 2016 with Russia. Uh, also has a sister who plays in the team with her, who's one of the best players in the world, Anavea Kareva. Happy birthday last week to Polina Kuznetsova as well. And then I went back to the very first competitor born on that day. And that is... Hippolyte Payroll. <laughs> or to use his full name, Francois Auguste Hippolyte Payroll. Born on the 10th of June, 1856 in Paris. He competed in the Sculpturing Statues competition of the arts in 1928. With his piece... A naked man with pigtails on his head is fighting with a tiger, brackets, probably a lion, who grabs his legs. A man tries to kill the animal with an instrument, brackets, battle axe. It may be the bronze figure known in the art trade as the man defeats the lioness. And yes, that, uh, that was in the art competition in 1928 also happy birthday happy to birthday. hippolyte payroll and and Hi hippolyte payroll sounds like a hr solution startup <laughs> it certainly does happy so, birthday Hannah. Yeah. send in all your birthday requests to olympopod at gmail.com and also just like send your like musings like we want to hear your musings please send your musings to olympopod at gmail com any any random stories you've got any yeah just just saying hello like just like hey i'm in kazakhstan because we know you're in kazakhstan like we see we see we see the listener figures we see you there yeah that one listener like say hello tell us who you are while you're listening to us <laughs> we want to know <laughs> and just one more callback because we stopped doing our what could you win oh yeah at these games because We've sort of stopped being able to win at stuff, but I'm going to make a big call and say in the 1960 Olympics, I could have won at getting a, a Soviet athlete to defect. Uh, well, that would make you That's my call. not a loser, unlike David Syme. Who went on to have a really successful medical career. Yeah, who cares? And a happy yeah, life. Boo. Yeah. boo. Right, so... Next up, we're off to Tokyo 1964, a Ooh. games which, uh, and a city... Went ahead. Which went ahead, yes. Which is more than can be said for the last time they tried to host the Olympic Games, which was 1940. And potentially the next time they're host the Olympic Games as of the time of recording. Christopher, I'm just saying right now, if they don't go ahead, like, I like... I've watched every single YouTube video on the Olympic channel. Like, I like, I don't know. Like, we'll, we'll just have to record our own Olympics if it doesn't go ahead. It is going ahead. Yes, it's happening. It is. 
It's happening. 1964 Tokyo definitely happened. So we'll see you next time. Bye.